few years ago, uh, best-selling pastor and author Craig Rochelle released a book called The Christian Atheist. And in that book, he describes a whole lot of people around the world who fit that title, a Christian atheist. In other words, he's describing people and he says very often he is himself one of these people who believes in God, believes that God is real, has a relationship with God by faith, and yet lives as though God isn't really there. In other words, we we live life, we work hard, we do all the things we do, we have our relationships, we attend church, we live everyday life. And God, at very best, is on the periphery of our lives. And he says, we, we say we believe in God, we say we have a relationship with God, and that's very true. And yet, if you looked at our lives, Chrishell says, very often they're no different, practically, from those who say there is no God. Because, to be honest, we don't really live from day to day as though he is really there and really real. And one of the ways I think um, that that comes through in our lives often is when we catch ourselves in moments of, of introspection or moments of reflection, asking ourselves questions like, why am I here? What's the point? What is my life really all about? Where is this thing even going? And I think in those seasons of life when we ask those questions or those junctions in life perhaps that we come to that cause us to ask those kind of things of ourselves, it's an indication that perhaps we've come to the realization that the way we're living our lives at this moment is perhaps a little bit futile and a little bit meaningless and perhaps we're much more of a Christian atheist than we ever thought. And if you've ever come to one of those junctures in life where you've asked those questions or you've ever had one of those seasons where you've kind of gone, am I missing something? What is the meaning? What is the purpose of all of this? It just seems somewhat futile. Then today we come to a psalm that I think helps propel us out of that place and into a place of meaning and fruitfulness in life. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love you to come with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, we're in the series that we're calling Prayer on the Journey, looking at what is called the Psalms of Ascent or the Pilgrim Psalms. It's a small collection of songs within the big collection of the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, running from Psalm 120 through to Psalm 134. And we're about the midpoint. We're at Psalm 127 today, and it's a psalm or a prayer that is about keeping God in our lives, making sure that God isn't on the periphery, making sure that we're not living life as Christian atheists, but we are in fact engaging with God in this journey of life so that it doesn't end up feeling somewhat futile and meaningless along the way. So Psalm 127 is where we are, and if you've got a Bible open there in front of you, a paper Bible, just want you to glance at it. If you're looking at the Bible on an app, just want you to to browse up and down a little bit, because I just want you to notice a couple of things about this psalm before we dive in. The first thing I want you to notice is the heading to the psalm. Very top, there's a little, in, in smaller font, there's a little heading to this, and like all of these songs that will say a song of ascents is the NIV or a pilgrim psalm or a pilgrim song, whatever it is in the translation you're reading. But then in addition to that, this particular psalm has the name of the author. 
of Solomon. Now, you don't normally associate the Psalms with Solomon. You normally associate the Psalms with his dad, King David. And normally when we think of Solomon, we think of the books that come next in our Old Testament, the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Those are the books that we think of that Solomon authored in the Bible. But he also authored two Psalms. And one of those two Psalms is this one that sits right in the middle of these pilgrim Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. What that means as we walk through the psalm together this morning, we're going to see that this psalm actually almost feels more like some verses out of Proverbs. It's um, categorized as a wisdom psalm. In other words, it reads more like the wisdom literature of Solomon more than a song that his dad would have written. So it feels less like a psalm and more like a proverb, basically, is what we're going to find. So that's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing I want you to notice is the structure of the psalm. Um, the NIV, which is the translation we use here, breaks it into two pieces, and most of the trans other translations I had a brief look at this week seem to do the same. So there's verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 to 5. So it's in two chunks, two pieces. Now, when I first started working on this whole series and pulling it together and just kind of glancing through each psalm to get a feel for it, I thought this psalm was a psalm about children. Because if you drop your eyes down to verse 3, that's exactly what it's talking about. And so the majority of the verses, the bulk of that, the second half of the psalm is all about kids. And so I thought that's kind of the key idea to the psalm. What I've discovered as I've looked at the psalm more in depth is actually it's not about children at all. So for those of you who don't have children and thought you were checking out for the next half an hour or 35 minutes... Sorry, you need to check back in, because this is not a psalm about kids at the core of the psalm, because what we're going to see is that the first two verses hold a principle, and then the last three verses are an example or an illustration of that principle. So actually, verses three to five are not the important part of the psalm. The important part of this psalm is the opening verses, verses one to two, and it illustrates what it gives a really key principle to life. And I want to word the principle this way. Without God, futility. With God, purpose. Without God, futility. With God, purpose. A few years ago, a movie came out called Night and Day, starring Cameron Diaz and Tom Cruise. Anyone seen it? few people. It's kind of a light-hearted kind of action slash comedy slash romance. I don't think they knew exactly which genre they were slotting into, and they tried to do it all, and it kind of doesn't quite work, but it's a, it's a fun, pretty light kind of movie. It's about this rogue CIA agent, um, played by Tom Cruise, called Roy Miller, who is trying to protect this battery that is going to change the world and the inventor of this battery from another rogue element within the CIA. And he ends up bumping into this beautiful woman, played by Cameron Diaz, uh, called June. And they're midway through the movie, and June is being um, followed or chased by these other federal agents who you think are the goodies, and actually they're the baddies, and Tom's really a goodie is basically how the movie goes. But we're midway through the movie, and he's trying to explain to Cameron Diaz's character, June, why she needs to stick with him rather than going with the guys flashing their federal badges at her. 
She needs to stay with him because it's while she's with him that she will be protected and safe. And he does this. With me, without me. With me, without me. June, if you're with me, you're safe. If you're not with me, then you're not safe. Without me, with me. With me, without me. You got that, June? With me, without me. Those of you who've seen the movie, that was about right, eh? Do I look a little bit like Tom? No. (laughs) But the point is that that is exactly what Solomon is doing in Psalm 127. With God, without God. With God, without God. Without God, you live your life practically as a Christian atheist, you find futility. You live with God, walking through life with him, you find purpose and hope and meaning. With God, without God. With Tom, without Tom. No, no, let's leave Tom aside. This is about God. With God, without God. And that's the basic principle at the heart of this psalm and what what verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 127 are trying to show us. So have a look at them with me because what Solomon does here is he does this principle negatively first and then positively. So negatively is verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. So if you've got Psalm 127 in front of you there, and I hope you do, um, have a look as I read. Psalm 127 verse 1, unless the Lord, unless Yahweh, it's the name of God in the Old Testament, unless Yahweh builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. So this principle is going to be expressed negatively and then positively, but it's the negative first. What Solomon says is that doing life without God is meaningless. It's futile. There's no real point to it. He's starting at the bottom of the with God, without God. He's starting with the without God. And he's saying unless God's in it, unless God's part of what is, whatever it is you're doing in life, it's really meaningless. It's really futile. It sounds very much like some of the stuff he would write in other parts of the Old Testament, doesn't it? Like the beginning to the book of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything's Meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors by which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go. The earth remains forever. It's all a waste of time. That's what Solomon said. Now, it's a different word here in Ecclesiastes than what he uses in Psalm 127, but it's a very similar principle. Without God, whatever it is that you and I are engaged in in life really is futile and meaningless and a waste of time. The way he does that is he does these three lines. Whoops, I've gone too far. These three lines together in verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. And we're meant to see um, a similar structure to them. The way that Hebrew poetry would work is what they call parallelism. So the lines would be in parallel. And you can see that in the first two lines really easily. Verse 1. Unless Yahweh builds the house, those that build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the guards who keep watch are watching in vain. So it's saying, verse 1, that those two lines are saying the same point. It's not two different points, it's one idea. Unless God's in it, whoever's doing it is doing it in vain. In fact, the words that are repeated most in these opening lines are those final words in each line in verse 1 that Solomon then uses to begin verse 2, in vain. In vain. In vain. It's meaningless. It's a waste of time. It's futile. 
the way that we choose to live if we choose to live without God lacks meaning, lacks purpose, lacks direction in our lives. And so he uses these three examples from his world. Without God, building a house is meaningless. Without God, keeping guard over a city is meaningless. Without God, toiling all day in the hot sun is meaningless. And that's not meant to suggest that that's the totality of life. He's using three pictures of life. But we could add anything from our world. Without God, sitting at your office desk is meaningless. Without God, sitting for an hour in the morning commute is definitely meaningless. Without God, correcting your children is meaningless. Without God, working on your marriage is meaningless. Without God, going for a holiday is meaningless. Take any aspect of life. What Solomon is saying is without God, if he's not in it, it's just a waste of time. Commentator uh, Walter Kaiser just describes it this way in a simple little book that he's written on these Psalms. Mere human activity is to no avail if God is left out. Mere human activity, if all we're doing is just doing stuff, and God's not in it, then it's to no avail. It's futile. It's a waste of time. And that unless Yahweh, unless the Lord that appears in those opening two lines in verse 1, I think that's to be assumed in that next line beginning of verse 2 as well. Unless Yahweh, unless Yahweh, unless Yahweh, it is in vain. What we're doing in life is futile. This is the way that Solomon described it a little bit later in his book Ecclesiastes, which is all about this concept of what life looks like without God in the picture. And Solomon wrote, My heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom and knowledge and skill, but then they've got to leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. You know those jolly kids who come along after you and haven't actually worked? They just get it all. This too, Solomon says, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and the anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. See, with God, without God. And Solomon's starting down here, without God. It's meaningless. Now, Solomon is not saying that without God, life doesn't work. He's not saying that you can never achieve anything. He's not saying that you can't be a success the way that people may look at success. He's not trying to argue, literally, for example, in the psalm, that unless God is the architect of your house, you will not be able to build a house that stands up. Because the builders among us will tell us that there are plenty of people who don't know God who can build pretty nice houses. He's not saying that if, if, if God is not at the heart of the sentries who are keeping watch over the city, that means anyone could have just attacked and take the city in warfare. He's not trying to argue 
by saying that it's futile or meaningless, that if someone does something without God, they're going to automatically fail because the truth of the matter is that's not true. What he's saying is without God, there's no meaning and purpose to it. See, Jesus was after this in Luke chapter 12 when he told a story, a fictional story, a parable about an incredibly wealthy man owned tremendous lands, had a number of servants working for him, and one particular year, the successful farmer and businessman pulled in a bumper crop. He had planted well, he'd done a bit of genetically engineering of his seed, he'd put in irrigation systems and made some key investments, and in addition to that, the, the, the sun had shone and the rains had fallen, and when harvest time came, he just pulled in the biggest harvest that anyone in that entire district had ever seen. And when he saw how good the harvest was going to be, the successful businessman said, well, the obvious thing to do when, when the profits are really pouring in is to reinvest those back into the company. So Jesus said he, he decided he would tear down some of his storage barns that were, were smaller and, and inadequate, and he would build much bigger storage barns for the abundance of the harvest that was about to come in. It was actually really good business sense. He was an astute businessman. But Jesus gets to the end of that parable, and he ends it this way. But God said to him, and we know him, by the way, in our Bibles, it's normally headed up the parable of the rich fool. Because God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus adds this final comment. This is how it will be with whoever stores up for themselves things but is not rich towards God. Jesus is going after exactly the same thing that Solomon is talking about in this particular song. The futility of life without God. This businessman in the story, the parable Jesus told, was not a fool because he was thick as two bricks. He was not a fool because he was a poor businessman. He was a very clever man. He was a fool because he did it all without God. And that's exactly what Solomon is saying. Without God, unless he's in the building of the house and the watching of the city and the toil through the day, unless he's at the center of that, we're just wasting our time. There's no purpose to it. There's no ultimate meaning to what it is we're doing. Now, we need to be careful here, just coming back um, to this opening idea here, that we don't swing the pendulum the other way. That we don't go, okay, so without God, it's meaningless to build, it's meaningless to guard, it's meaningless to toil. What we don't then do is swing the pendulum the other way and say, okay, well, I'm just going to trust God. I'm just going to sit back, I'm going to let go and let God. I'm just going to trust him and I'm not going to do anything. Because actually that doesn't work either. This is not an invitation to not build and not guard and not toil. Uh, because Solomon will go after that big time in the book of Proverbs. I've just selected three. Lazy hands, he said, make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Or Proverbs 12, 
Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. I like this. Sluggards do not plow in season. So at harvest time, they look and they find nothing. Solomon often condemns laziness and the sluggard and holds up hard work in the book of Proverbs. So these words in Psalm 127 are not an invitation to be lazy and to not build and to not toil and to not guard. It's to do that with God rather than without him. It's just an important thing to keep in mind. This is about a life lived with God, and a life lived with God has meaning and purpose that a life without God does not. And that's where, whoa. Right, I'm just going to lead you in a song. (laughs) No, I'm not. Here we go. So, negatively, he says, doing life without God is meaningless. Now then, the last line in verse 2 comes in here because this is now the positive uh, flip side of the coin. He now is going to express this positively. So have a look at the end of verse 2, just the last line there. The NIV puts it this way, for he grants sleep to those he loves. You think, well, hold on, what's, what's that saying? It's essentially saying the opposite to those first three lines, that with God, doing life with God brings purpose and it brings hope and it brings a, a, a faith and a trust in him. I said this psalm reads more like a proverb. It reads more like wisdom, literally some of the other stuff that, that Solomon wrote. And here's where we need to be really careful. Far too many Christians read the wisdom literature, so read the book of Proverbs, or read a line like that as a promise that God is making. Proverbs in the Bible, and this would be very close to this, are a true description of the way life normally works. They are not a promise from God. So you take the, maybe the best known proverb at all, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. There are far too many Christian parents who think that's a promise from God. That if I train up my children really well, they will always walk with God. That isn't how life works. It's not a promise that if you do an outstanding parenting job, you are guaranteed that your child is going to walk with God. It's a truism. It is all other things being equal. This is the way life under God normally works. Normally, you do a good job of raising your kids before God. Normally, they'll follow him. But not always. And it's not a watertight promise. And you can't bank on that that that's going to happen. Now, this is similar. This, this line here at the end of verse 2. He grants sleep to those he loves. How many of you had a poor sleep last night? There's a few questions that raises, isn't it, according to this? No, no, because this is not a promise. All right, so don't bug Kylie. Thank you. Excuse me. She just didn't have a good sleep. This is not a promise that if God loves you, you're going to have a great sleep. And if you didn't have a good sleep last night, then you've got some serious questions about whether God loves you or not. No, 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 no. That's not how you read wisdom literature in the Bible. 
It's a truism. What it's saying is without God, life is futile and meaningless. But with God, generally, you'll get a good night's sleep. Now, what's he saying? What he's saying is if you do life with God, if you work hard at building and toiling and guarding with God, with him in the picture, you tend to be able to toil and build and guard and then go to bed at night trusting God that you've done a good day's work and you've done as much as you can do and the rest of it is now in God's hands and you're just going to leave it with him and go to sleep. That's what it's saying. So this is the way one commentator, James Boyce, describes it. God works and we have to work, so this is not a, you know, let go and let God. But after we've worked, we lie down to rest and we leave the outcome in God's hands. That's the essence of this. In fact, I would argue this little ambiguous line at the end of verse 2 is the heart of the song. With God, you toil, you work, you guard, you build, you raise kids, you work on your marriage relationship, you have fun. But you do that with God at the center of what you're doing. Because then having done your part before him, you leave the rest with him and just trust him that he's got this together. See, it's the negative and the positive. With, without God, with God. And Solomon says, the key to a life that doesn't feel futile and doesn't feel meaningless is to live with God. That's, that's the big idea here. Keep God at the heart of everything you do. Rather than having God as the, on the periphery, rather than having God as the center of your life for two hours on a Sunday morning when you come and sing some songs and listen to a message and you know, have a coffee and talk about, gee, that was a close All Blacks game last night, and then head home, and now for the rest of the week, God then now moves to the periphery of life. He says, no, no, no. What Solomon is saying, no, that is meaningless. That is futility. God has to be at the center, at the heart of everything we do. If you're a parent, then God needs to be at the heart of your parenting. If you are working in an office, God needs to be at the heart of your work. If you run your own business, God needs to be at the heart of your business. If you're married, then God needs to be at the heart of your marriage. If you've got a boyfriend or girlfriend and you're exploring a romantic relationship, God needs to be at the heart of that relationship. Whatever it is we're doing in life, Solomon says, God needs to be at the heart. It's with him or without him. The best way to live is with him. Put him, keep him at the center of everything you do. That is why. You come to other parts of the Bible like this, where Paul writes to the Colossians and says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as though you're working for the Lord and not for human masters. Because you know you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. And he's writing to slaves back in the Roman Empire, but what he was saying to the slaves is, no, no, without God, with God. And Paul says, be a slave with God. You do the very best job you can, but you do it with God at the center. 
You serve as though you're not even serving your human master. You serve as though you are serving God and honoring God and doing the very best job you can for God because one day God will reward that. That's what it means for God to be at the center. So if you're at uni or you're at high school, Paul would come along and Solomon would come and say, without God, you can pursue, you can get straight A's. But without God, who gives a rip? Who cares? No one cares about any of my straight A's. But with God, you can get straight A's or straight C's. But if you have done your best and kept God at the center of what you are doing, that has tremendous meaning. Because you are now studying for the glory of God and seeking to honor him and bring your very best to him not caring about teachers, not caring about colleagues. That's with God. Without God, with God. Keep God at the heart, the center of everything you do. So, what about the rest of this? What about verses 3 to 5? What are we meant to do with the rest of the psalm? Well, as I said, I think verses 3 to 5 are simply exhibit A. Solomon is a lawyer, and he is having established the principle, without God, futility, with God, purpose, keep God at the heart of everything you do. He now turns around and just says, right, exhibit A. Let's talk about kids, those of you who are parents. What do we know? Well, have a look at verses 3 to 5. He's making two very simple points. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Okay, can we just... So stop for a minute. Okay, a proverb is not a promise. That verse is not saying that if you've been really obedient, you get rewarded with children and infertile couples haven't obeyed enough. Okay? That is not what it says because it's not a promise. It's a proverb. It is simply saying, under God, any children you get are a blessing from his hand. Whether you conceive by simply looking at each other romantically across a room, whether you used IVF, whether you had anything in between, children are a blessing from him. That's what it's saying. Verse 4, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of arrows. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Solomon's making two points. Having healthy children is a gift from God. Having heaps of kids in a world where they had huge infant mortality, having heaps of kids, that's a gift from God. And at the end of the day, if you're able to have kids, that's actually a blessing from God. I mean, you can have as much sex as you want, but actually it's God who gives the child. Raising godly children... That's a gift from God as well. You can work at it. You can labor at your parenting all you like. But at the end of the day, you have to go to sleep and trust God with your kids. And if you want kids at the end of verse 5 that can stand in the city gate and contend with their opponents well because they live an upright life of integrity, that's a gift from God. So what Solomon's doing is he's using parenting as his example of this principle in verses 1 and 2. Without God, 
parenting children is futile. It's futile because actually God's the one who gives you kids, and God is the one who shapes their hearts. You work at it with everything you've got. You don't just sit back as a parent and let go and let God. You know, God will sort out my toddler who runs nuts around the house. No, you parent well. You labor at parenting. You toil. You get up early. What was it in verse 2? You rise early and stay up late. There's parenting. So you labor at it and toil at it, but you're doing it with God. So at the end of the day, you work hard. You tell them stories about Jesus. You do your best to introduce them to the good news of his grace. You work hard to shape their character and their behavior. But at the end of the day, your children are in the hands of God. So do you want a parent without God? Do you want a parent with God? Now what's true of parenting in verses 3 to 5 is true of every other avenue in life. And Paul could have gone on and added more verses to Psalm 127. Unless the Lord works to make your business flourish, you can work at your business all you like and it will not work. Unless the Lord is at the heart of your romantic relationship, you can work hard to make this thing and it may not fly. Or it may but it will end up being meaningless and futile because he is not at the heart. That's the concept. That's what this psalm is all about. With God, without God. Solomon says, keep God at the heart of everything that you're doing in life. Let me finish really quickly. I want to suggest five real quick things as real practical steps to live this out. So here's what I want you to do for just 30 seconds. I want you to think about an area of your life where sometimes you wonder, where's the meaning in this? Maybe it's your career, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your parenting, maybe it's your leisure, maybe it's your finances, whatever it is. I want to invite you to just think for a moment about an area of your life that sometimes might feel futile to you. Maybe it's your studies. And what I want to do is I just want to run through really quick five real practical steps. I just want to use those as a grid for you to stop and think about where you're at, about keeping God at the heart of everything you do. Number one, I think what that means practically in our lives is work hard. Work hard. We have a part to play in every aspect of our lives under God. That means in each area of our lives we're to work hard. You're married, you'd work hard at your marriage. If you're a parent, you'd work hard at your parenting. If you're an employee, you'd do a really good job of being a diligent employee. If you've got great friendships, then you work hard at being a good friend. You're a teacher in a school, you work hard at being a fantastic teacher to those kids or to those preschools or whatever it is. If you're a builder, you work hard at being a builder. You're a grandparent, you work hard at being a grandparent. Whatever part of life we're talking about, we work hard. This is not an invitation to let go and let God and sit back and do nothing. Work hard. But if that's where we stop, we're in big trouble. So point two, trust deeply. Work hard and trust deeply. They go together. 
whatever it is we're talking about in life, we do the best we can, and then we just leave it to God. You're a student and you've got exams coming up. You study like crazy. And then you hold out in front of God and say, God, I've given it my best shot. I'm going to bed. Would you help me with that exam tomorrow? If you're married, you work hard at your marriage, investing everything you can. And then you keep bringing it back to God day after day after day, saying, God, would you help us in this marriage? Because we can only do so much. You need to change our hearts. Work hard. Trust deeply. Third, obey fully. It does no good to work hard at establishing a business if you're just starting out in a new business and you put toil, get up early, work late, work hard, do everything you can, trust God, pray about it, say, God, would you please help us make this, do this right? And then you don't run that with integrity. You fail to actually run a business with good, honest principles that exhibit the character of God. If you don't obey what Scripture says about honesty and integrity, then you're working hard and trusting deeply doesn't really go anywhere. If you're in a dating relationship, I would be advising you to work hard at really getting to know each other, really working to make sure you understand each other and connect with each other and is this the right person? And you trust deeply and you pray heaps and you bring it to God and ask God to bless this if this is of him. But if you do all of that and then you're sleeping together, it doesn't work. Because you've introduced something whole new in there that God is not part of. We have to work hard and trust deeply and then obey fully what God has said. Fourth one, which is where this whole year is going, we pray much. I think more than anything, that is what trust deeply really begins to look like in our lives. We pray heaps. I've said heaps already through this year, but I've been deeply convicted this year and I'm growing a lot in my own prayer life. But I've never prayed as a dad as much as I have this year for my boys. I've never prayed as much for Rochelle as I prayed for my wife this year. I've never actually prayed as much for you as a church as I have prayed as a pastor this year. Work hard, but trust deeply and obey fully and pray much and relax often. I think that's at the heart of the psalm. We do everything that we can do. And then we leave it in God's hands and we chill out. Roche and I just did this. We just went this week for two nights to Waiheke Island, mainly because we're just exhausted, probably from working too hard and not trusting enough these last few months. It was a working week, and I didn't tell the elders, but I was out of here for two days. And Andre, I don't even feel guilty. <laughs> Work hard. Trust deeply, obey fully, pray much, and then relax often. Because in the end, unless Yahweh builds the house, we are laboring in vain. We need God at the heart of everything we do. Do you stand with me?
I want to pray for us. A bunch of people who too easily can be practical atheists who love God and, and cherish God and obey God and yet when you look at our lives, often it doesn't always look like God is really at the heart. And I want to pray for us in all of the various aspects and parts to our lives that we would always consistently keep God at the heart of everything we're doing. And then the band's going to lead us in a closing song that really, I hope, will be our prayer as we head out of here this day with Psalm 127 in our ears. Abba, God, thank you for these words. Thank you for this reminder from Solomon that unless you are at the heart of everything we do in our lives, it's futile. It's meaningless. Even if outwardly it looks successful, without you, there is no meaning. There is no purpose. What's the point? And God, yet so often in our lives we can go chasing after all kinds of things and think our meaning and our purpose is going to come from those when it all comes from you. We need you at the heart of our work. We need you at the heart of our marriages. We need you at the heart of our finances. We need you at the heart of our parenting and our grandparenting. We need you at the heart of our university studies and our high school studies. We need you at the heart of our romantic relationships. We need you at the heart of our leisure. We need you at the heart of everything we do. We grow tired of living without you. We want to do life with you. Help us do that, we pray. Amen.